All right. Welcome to episode number three of Native As I Can Be Between Two Cultures. I am your host, Gino Effin Ray. Some of you may remember when I used to call myself that all the damn time. Not so much anymore. Um, so I've gotten a good response to the first two episodes, and I'm noticing that episode two is on pace to have more plays than episode one. Um, looking at the amount of time that's passed since I uploaded it, comparing the two. So that's good. That's exciting. And of course, the other exciting news, uh, if you don't have Facebook, is that it has been, I had to submit each episode to the good people at Apple for them to review and decide if they would put it on their um, platform. And as of yesterday, they did. They accepted it, which means, just for reference, there's 700,000 podcasts uh, on the Apple platform. And that is, yes, a lot of competition. But what I see it as is um, that many podcasts has that big of an audience. So, um, and that many people clamoring to hear new information and new stories and new ideas. So that was a big deal to me. Um, and I, I'm pretty excited about it because I've only just recently got into listening to podcasts. And that's the platform I choose to do it on. So... Um. Yeah, I'm excited. I think that's a big step and a uh, a chance to get more visibility, or whatever the audio equivalent of visibility is: hearability, audio ability, ear ability. I don't know. Um. So, anyways, um, another thing I wanted to mention is. I've been asked a few times now since I started doing this, kind of what is the point? What, why am I doing this? What's the, the goal? The goal really is... This goes all the way back to when this was a documentary idea. And I wanted to travel across the United States and interview uh, people that were important to the Native community you know as a whole or the ones that they live in so um and i wanted to discuss what the biggest issues are for native americans today where they saw the native community 10 years down the road um that was uh, it, it was a native thing i'm native i wanted to increase um Awareness of what's happening in native communities because I don't think they are, we are, I should say, represented very well um, in media or anywhere. So I wanted to, I wanted to shine some light on the things happening in native communities and how things are not always great. Um, so if you think about that's kind of where my head was at around 15, 20 years ago when I first had the idea 
Um, I still want to do that, but I think my uh, I th- I don't think I need it to be that pointed anymore. And uh, and I don't know if that's because my maybe I've matured some, or maybe I just have a bigger world view than I did back then. But I still want to I still want to do that. I still want to raise the awareness and show people what's happening on reservations and uh, what native people are going through but I also think that a bigger story can be told and that's why I'm expanding to two-spirit people and plan on um, having talks with people that have people that were adopted or gave I don't know if that's the right word. Gave up a kid for adoption. I don't know if that's the right way to say that. But, and then what that's like to be coming into a a family that you don't know or, well, yeah, I can get into that more later. But I want to word that correctly. So I'll just stop right there. Um, But so, and to get back to my point, I the goal of the podcast now and the reason I want to do it is I want to examine all these things and basically just provoke thought. I'm not going to be militant. I'm not going to be political. I mean, I, I will have opinions, but I really just want to um, just paint a real picture of people's lives whether that be on an individual level or as a culture or ethnicity uh, I want to I want people to be able to tell their stories and I want the listener to be able to come up with their own conclusion Um, and to get back to what I was saying about I have opinions on things and I may share those I may not one thing I'm going to do on this show is I will do my best to present factual information, which means I will do research and if I state something on the show, I will make sure it's factual or if I'm not sure what I am stating is fact, I will say I don't know if that's true. I will say that's my perspective or that's what I've heard or so that's for the people listening to um, decide what to do with. Uh, it's and really and I and I'm being I, I want it to be clear. I'm not really trying to sway anybody's opinion on anything on this show. At least at least as of this moment. And the ideas that I have for it. Um, It's up for everybody to decide what they believe and what they don't believe. And um, I don't really feel like that's my my job. Or is it something I want to be my job to um, steer people on what to think or believe. So... That's where I'm at. Um, so this week's episode is uh, ought to be pretty good. We're going to be speaking to a 
a friend of mine named Kenji Nita. He's a Japanese man who happens to be a pastor who also happened to dabble or maybe even more than dabbled in mixed martial arts. And I'm pretty sure the two ran concurrently that he would be a pastor and a mixed martial artist at the same time. So talking about, you know, being in between two cultures, I think that's... um, I think that's definitely wedged in between two cultures that seemingly are not alike. But I'm willing to bet that Kenji, who happens to be one of the smartest people I've ever met, I'm willing to bet he will have no problem finding parallels between being a pastor or religion and mixed martial arts and the practicing thereof. So um, he'll be calling from California and so the audio will have a very much speakerphone being recorded by a speakerphone quality to it because that's what it will be. Um, Yeah, until I invest some money and upgrade into a better audio recording setup, that's what you're going to get. But... The, con- the, the purpose of this show is to not show how uh, skilled I am at editing audio. It's to, it's to uh, have a voice and allow people to express themselves and their story. And, uh, you know, I think I've went over that before. Um, so that's it. That's what's going on this week. Thank you for listening. Um, whatever platform you're listening on and i appreciate it so let's get right into it okay everybody here we are episode three talking with my pal kenji nita um now i want to point out correct me if i'm wrong kenji but i think this is the first time we've sat and talked since I moved from Boise to to Portland, and I and I met you at that the Sherry's or whatever it was, right in, in Ontario. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we sat and had a conversation. I mean, we've interacted on Facebook, but I think this is the first time we've had a real conversation. Does that sound right? Yeah. Now that you mention it, it is. Yeah. So it's been a while, and I. Um, I, I think here's what's uh, oh by the way Kenji I want to point out something too before we get too far into this I'm wearing right now as we speak an all black Adidas jacket with a boys and girls club logo on the sleeve do you still have yours? yep totally <laughs> I, paid, I paid for that shirt in blood sweat and tears yes so we got mostly our tears. Uh, mostly tears yeah um <laughs> And, and dodgeballs to the face. Yeah. <laughs> we got our we got smoked in a dodgeball tournament, but they kind of threw us a bone and gave everybody on the team these sweet Adidas jackets. I think for best hair or for best costume or something like that. Whatever it yeah, was. Yeah, I remember uh, I was kind of the, the assembler and the fearless leader of that group, and I think I assembled the worst dodgeball team that ever. <laughs> <laughs> 
but we got some killer jackets out of it. Yeah, totally worth it. Um, so I thought well, here I thought we could get into here's have you you've listened to the podcast mine before, right? Yeah, at least some of it. Yep. So the the overlying theme being caught between two cultures or existing between two cultures mm-hmm. and uh I thought about you being um a former a former mixed martial artist and pastor as sort of being, you know, that kind of fits the mold or being a Japanese American. Yeah. Uh but I think we could probably go deeper than that. So um to start why don't you explain uh, kind of what you've done in the past as far as social work or work with the church um, just kind of where you're from and any um, educational um, accomplishments things like that sure well I think the the first accomplishment I should mention is I was the fourth grade spelling bee champion at my elementary school and uh, that was pretty sweet but I got to the regional spelling bee and I misspelled the very first word and so I had to go home in shame especially as an Asian you can't go out that early no. <laughs> but uh, I was uh, born in Seattle grew up there until I was five and then we moved over to uh, the east side of Washington State and um, at that point I, I kind of didn't know what to call it at the time but I was already in this, this third culture like I didn't feel like I had a home culture and I didn't really feel like I was a part of this new one because uh, we moved in with my family and my family, they're all like oaky rednecks from the old school. So my, my grandma came over out west during the Dust Bowl from Oklahoma in the 1920s. And uh, they're just pure country, like hey, everything you can imagine. And uh, I learned a lot from them, but because I wasn't, uh, um, I wasn't totally from that world and, you know, I'm a minority, so that was... That was kind of strange fitting in there. And then when I was eight years old, we moved into these housing projects in another city. And uh, the housing projects was about 85, 90% Mexican. And so uh, I made best friends in that um, housing projects, but it was weird too because I didn't speak Spanish, you know? And uh, I didn't feel like I fit in there, so I felt already like I was fitting in with a new culture. And then I became uh, best friends with um, a family there, the Mendozas. And I was 13 and I moved to Cheney, Washington, uh, which is a college town. And in Cheney, Washington, uh, I went I went back from being around uh, mostly Mexicans to being around mostly white people. And uh, by that time, I was I was more Mexican than anything else, probably. And uh, it was weird getting into this um, kind of upper middle class, uh, you know, white population. That was strange. Everybody, I remember when I went to my new school, everybody thought I was a gangster for some reason, even though I, I wasn't. Um, but they just kind of assumed I was because it was, it was me and like three other kids who weren't white. And so I went to that school for a while. And um, like you mentioned, I got into martial arts at a young age. And then right after high school, um, I converted to Christianity. I didn't grow up in the church at all. Um, I was actually an atheist and a practicing Zen Buddhist through high school. And so after I converted to Christianity, I went to the church world. And it wasn't just the church world, it was the evangelical church world of a bunch of uh, white boomers. And so I remember, um, you know, me and you probably grew up on a lot of the same music, like Wu-Tang Clan, EPMD, 
Cypress Hill. You know, I remember the first uh, music album I ever got was uh, an NWA album. <laughs> and so the first time I went to church, uh, there was no NWA there, and I was amazed. It was a bunch of, uh, it was just really strange music and strange behavior, and I didn't understand this kind of, it was an upper middle class, mostly white collar uh, people who were the age of my parents. <clears throat> and I was I was that one guy at church. There was me and LaVon. LaVon was a black dude, and then there was me. And uh, everybody was older, and it was just a very strange, weird world that I, I had to figure out. And, um, you know, of course, I was rough around the edges. So the church world seemed kind of like a foreign land to me again. And I don't know why, but I, I always find myself in these in these situations where... I don't totally feel at home in the new world, and I didn't really know where my home was in the old one. And so I'm just kind of uh, in this in this third space. And so now I've been a pastor for a long time, and I can navigate the church world finally. But I still feel at times like uh, um, I'm, almo- I'm almost at home in the church, but I kind of have a foot in the world. And um, yeah, I, I don't know if I've ever quite really settled yet. But that's kind of my my strange story about being this cultural drifter that never got deep roots and really felt totally at home um, anywhere when he first showed up. Well, this is a direct quote from you. You have said that you are a theologian, a Bible scholar, local church pastor, and a really good break dancer. And yep, that's, that's true. And a bipod, a bipartisan mocker. Um, (laughs) so um this was my favorite quote of yours and i don't know if this was the same um by the way i'm pulling these quotes um kenji has a youtube channel uh called reverend kenji conversations and sermons about jesus and other stuff And this this is where I thought we could go a little deeper because I think it was the sermon about passion. You said, I want to help the world and I kind of want to burn it all down at the same moment. Um, yeah. And uh, you talked about a lot of stuff in that um, sermon. But that one to me was the... If there's anything that's living between two cultures, I'd say that those two extremes are, are be, you'd be firmly in between there. Yeah, yeah, I think that fits. Yeah, I forgot to go through my, my educational stuff. Uh, I do have a bachelor's in uh, social and behavioral sciences from George Fox University, and then I have my master's degree in theology and leadership from Gonzaga University. But uh, yeah, I think. Um, I don't know, man. I'm I'm like this walking bundle of contradictions, you know. Um, uh, I I think most the people who are mostly jaded by the world are the ones who who want to help it the most, and you know. So we kind of wade into this this um, I don't know. I want to see the ugly side of humanity, you know. Mm-hmm. And we see some of the the dark stuff, and we tend to be more sensitive to it. And as as we wade into it, sometimes it can, uh, I don't know, it can, what's the word? I, I think, like in my spiritual life, I know I'm supposed to be a perfect, super spiritual pastor, but if I'm being honest, I think I, I've accumulated a lot of resentment towards God that I've had to work out as I go along with him. Because um, 
uh, I just see all these things in the world that frustrate me and all these things in the world that uh, I wish he would just fix because he's supposed to be a ninja, you know? Right. And uh, um, I wish he would fix it all. And then, of course, I know the theology that, you know, it's good to feel that pain. It's good to feel the hurt with other people so you can be compassionate and enter into the suffering and be present with them. And I know that God wants to use us to, to help the world. And I get all that, but sometimes in my heart, I wish he'd just use magic and fix it instantly. Uh, but because he doesn't, sometimes I just want to blow it all up instead. At the same time, I'm trying to, trying to help it. Right. Snap your fingers and eliminate half the population. Something yeah. Like <laughs> So was there ever an overlap in your uh, MMA career and your pastoral duties? Yeah, there was uh, one church. I, I, I started a church. We call it church planting. I started a church called Open Arms Church, and it was an inner city church. <clears throat> and uh, actually out of the church itself, we'd have church on Sunday. Then we'd move all the pews out of the way because during the week we used the sanctuary as a fight gym. And so we'd uh, move all the pews, we'd lay out all the mats, and then we would train the church during the week. Then we'd roll the mats, clean up the blood, put the pews back, and we'd talk about Jesus on Sundays. Uh, so <laughs> I did that for several years, and I loved it, man. SureDog.com has you listed at with a professional record of 0-1, with a height yeah. of 0 feet tall, 0 inches, and 0 pounds. But so is that one? Is that the fight in Montana? Yeah. Uh huh. You only had the yeah. one pro fight. I thought you had more than that. So I have an uh, amateur record of eight and four. So I fought about twelve amateur fights, and uh, that that one fight we did in Montana. That's the only pro fight I ever had. Oh okay. I thought you had yeah. more for some reason. Yeah, that was my only pro fight too, by the way. And uh, we made a decent amount of, of money for. Maybe a grand total of five minutes in the ring between the two of us. But we only trained for a grand total of about an hour, I think. I think the the drive to Montana was more – took longer than the actual amount of time we spent getting ready for that fight. Yeah, we did not take that fight seriously. (laughs) It was fun though. Yeah, we had a blast. Uh, We might have to tell the – it's over a story, but by, by the end of this podcast. But, I think we probably have to. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, getting back to the pastor. So, uh, the pastor thing. Um, so, just watching you do your thing is very conversational and relaxed. It seems like, and uh, is there. And there's a full sleeve tattoo and some Chuck Taylors going on. Is there? Has there been any like backlash or has it ever been like maybe you just weren't for some people because of a more I don't know if you'd call that a modern approach or relaxed or maybe not as uh, fire and brimstone. Have you had any kind of backlash from that? Any, yeah, def- definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, when I was a new Christian, uh, I was kind of celebrated in the church to be honest because. Um, I was kind of like a diversity hire, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and so they were they were glad I was in the church because um, I was different from them, different color skin, different attitude, different age. And so they were actually really happy to to be able to welcome in somebody so different to them. And uh, but also I was I was brand new and I came out of this I don't know this um, 
kind of, I was a very angry young man, as opposed to be being an angry old man like I am now. <laughs> so I was like a angry young man, and um, you know they they had a lot of grace with me because I was new. But now that I'm a pastor, um, a lot of, basically all that grace is gone because I've gone from kind of a uh, I went from kind of a new convert and somebody who they knew had a rough background for sure to now I'm supposed to be kind of this avatar of their faith, this kind of mediator, like a representative of their evangelical culture. You know, theologically, I am pretty conservative, but culturally, I'm pretty liberal. You know, I grew up in a, um, I don't know, kind of a rough way. And I, I grew up listening to different kinds of music and living just in a different way than them. And so I think, um, I, I think there's, there's at least a few people who would, would love it if I was probably more polished and I was probably more presentable and I was a little less honest about. Um, my doubts and and my struggles and and my relationship with God from from the pulpit when I'm preaching, but you know, um, I just don't like to pretend I'm somebody I'm not. And so I think God can handle all my doubts. He can handle all my quirks and idiosyncrasies. And so I just I don't pretend to be an expert or guru, but I just like to uh, be honest about um, the things I've learned and the things I'm learning. And kind of the journey I've walked so far. But a lot of people don't like that because they want certainty on every issue. They want me to look a certain way. They want me to speak a certain way when I'm preaching. But, you know, there's plenty of churches out there with people who are polished like that. So they're always welcome to go to one of those. Has, has there ever been a point where, uh, and maybe there's been many points like this, where uh, you're looking out as you're as you're doing your thing, and and you you just say this isn't working, like I and, and want to turn your back on it. Yeah, actually, I actually left the ministry for a couple of years, and um, that's because that church I told you about I had in the inner city. Um, I left that church because I was I was working a couple jobs, going to school full time. I had three young kids at home. And uh, and I was um, uh, running a martial arts school, and I was being a pastor. So basically, I was just working way too much, mm-hmm. and uh, my family was paying the price. So I just well, I decided to let go of one of my jobs and to let go of my church work. And uh, when I left that church, it was a very dark time for me because I felt like God had betrayed me. You know, I remember at the time thinking that here I am, busting my ass in the inner city, helping people who are you know, addicted and hurting and broke and poor. And those are the people God cares about. You know, he, he loves them a lot. And at the same time, he got these fat preachers on TV with, you know, five Rolexes on their hand, driving caddies. And I remember <clears throat> having problems with God. Like, why would he give them all the success and make me struggle so much when I'm closer to the people who are closer to his heart? So I was pretty spiritually immature back then, and I had some hard lessons to learn. But yeah, I remember being really angry with God at the time. And when the church closed, I actually went into depression for several months. And um, I just worked my blue-collar jobs and uh, tried to finish school. And then I ended up getting a job in the, in uh, Boise, Idaho. And I moved there and kind of got into the social worker world for a couple of years. And that's where we met. That's when I was working at the company. And um, it was a good break for ministry. Um, and... In time, I realized I wanted to be back in the game, and 
I, I did some growing up during that dark period. So big picture was really good for me, but you know, I actually did turn my back on the church world for a while. And, um, at some point I realized that even though I, I don't totally feel at home in, in church culture, that um, maybe God still had a role for me there. And that, you know, it was, it was the best way I felt equipped to help people. So I went back to it. Yeah. Uh, do you ever concern yourself with... Um how long does it how long do you prep for how long are your sermons like 45 minutes or 40 yeah, minutes about that. you spend uh-huh. all week on those because then I noticed you didn't have any kind of notes with you yeah no my sermon prep I would not recommend to anybody I have a very strange approach but uh, I just read like a madman all the time and I like to be very thoughtful on the subjects I'm preaching on and so uh, um, my sermon prep is I'll outline my sermon after I get the idea. So I usually go through several drafts of an outline. And then I just preach it. So um, outlining my sermons takes about, I don't know, four to six hours until I settle on something I'm really happy with. But um, what a lot of preachers do is they outline their sermon. They'll put in all the illustrations. They'll write down the transitional sentences. They'll nail the introduction and conclusion. And I don't do any of that other stuff. Uh, some preachers actually write out every word they're going to say. And uh, I know preachers who spend 20, 30 weeks on a sermon every week. And uh, I don't do that. I spend a lot of time with people, and I spend a lot of time with books. And so what I do is I get a good outline I think is going to be effective, and then I just preach it. And so all the illustrations come to me that day um, as I'm preaching it. And uh, the transitions, though, I just do them on the fly. And so I like preaching that way because it's spontaneous. It keeps me in the moment. And my preaching style is... uh, it's a very earthy, authentic, honest preaching style. And so, honestly, I just like not being as polished. Uh, I don't know if anybody else likes it, but that's how I do it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why I was wondering sort of, you know, with that style, um, you know, if there was any kind of backlash. And, and I also wondered, because you've done this to me before, do you ever worry yourself about going over people's heads? with the message yeah. or the content. You know, if anything you write or create content-wise, um, I put the audience at the very center of what I'm doing. And although I have this uh, online audience and people listen to me from former congregations and all kinds of stuff, I, uh, I focus on the people in the room, mostly. And so um, I, I tailor my sermons to my audience. But even among my audience, there's people at all different levels. So... Um, Sometimes I gotta maybe simplify concepts. Um, sometimes I need to overcome objections. Some people can handle they're more abstract in nature in the way they think, so I can get a little more nerdy. So I kind of have to um, I have to think about how to hit every note as I'm preaching, yeah. so I can have a point of contact with with everybody in the room. And you know, I'm also thinking of their life situations and what could be most helpful to them. So. Um, I know at times I'm speaking over some people's heads, and then I know that sometimes I might be sounding too basic for some people. But you know, I got to do. I have to do my best to try and uh, have a point of contact with everybody in the room. So that's what I do. Well, I hope we're not getting too uh, churchy for my audience or any audience, which seems like a f- really kind of a hilarious way to offend people. But. Um, <laughs> I want to uh, mention too that you have a book 
It's available on Kindle called Hearing God, Discovering a Practical Guide to Developing a Powerful Prayer Life, Spiritual Formation for Everyone. So how long did it take to write the title to that book? I have no I think the, the, the title took longer than writing the actual book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I still have a, I still have a lot of... You know, actually, most of my friends are not in the church world, and so I still spend a lot of time with um, people outside the church. And so, um, as a pastor, I found that a lot of people who do go to church, um, they have a hard time connecting with God on a personal level. And so that's a book I wrote, just a super brief book. It it could be a pamphlet, probably, but it was just uh, to help give them a practical method, uh, you know, a, a practical way to maybe incorporate more direct connection with God in their, in their spiritual lives. Well, I do think for non-church-going people or maybe even church-going people that there is something uncomfortable about the whole idea of it. Uh, yeah. At least there always was for me. Um, and, and that's not to say I'm not a spiritual person now. I think I probably am more now than I ever was before in, just in the last couple of years. But... Uh, I was somebody that was really put off by overly churchy people. Yeah. The friendliness and it just, you know, it it just made me uncomfortable and like and uh I think for that reason alone I was probably well, I will say for that reason and just to kind of be in vogue, I was sort of anti-church, anti you know, just, you know, it just seemed like, you know, in your 20s that's a good time to to be that way. Yeah, but that's what I also liked about um, kind of going through your sermons because I'd never heard one before. I mm. never went to one of your services or anything, obviously, and uh, I totally dug just that kind of conversational style and making the Bible seem less um, imposing and relatable. It seemed more relatable than to to have somebody kind of break it down. Mm. Do you think? Uh, that obviously helps, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's kind of like, uh, this is a nerdy analogy, but, you know, Aristotle is usually a lot easier to read than the people who write about Aristotle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Jesus, if you read what he actually said, it's actually pretty clear. And uh, it's brilliant stuff, but it's pretty accessible, too. I mean, he was a... Uh, he was a blue-collar guy from the country in the uh, uh, ancient Near East. So he's, uh, ethnically, he's this Asian guy who's, uh, and he didn't look like Kenny Loggins, you know? He looked like a, a Middle Eastern dude from 2,000 years ago. <laughs> no offense to Kenny, Kenny Loggins. I mean, he's a beautiful man. Yeah. But, he's a um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Jesus was this brown Asian dude from the Middle East back in the day, and uh he, when he was teaching, he was teaching the farmers, the other blue-collar workers, to, to normal people with real problems. And so his ideas are actually really accessible. I think uh, a lot of preachers and churchy folks, um, I don't know, they, they overcomplicate it. And so I just try and, when, when I'm preaching, I just try and uh, get out of the way and try and get Jesus to speak for himself as much as I can. I don't know how successful I am, but yeah, I think uh, ho- hopefully it helps some people. Let's get back to MMA for a minute. Um, so, how old did you say you? How old were you when you got into mixed martial arts? 
Let's see. I started Thai boxing when I was a kid. That was actually my second stop. My first stop was Taekwondo for a few months. Then I found this weird old man from uh, Thailand who, he's a white guy, but he lived in Thailand, who taught Thai boxing from his garage. So I started training with Ajahn Steve. And um, I did Thai boxing for a long time. Then in high school, I got into different styles when I moved. I got to Kyokushin, uh, which is a, uh, a kind of violent karate style. When I uh, was in high school and lived in Chini, that college town I talked about. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, um, um, what year was it? Probably just about 98 or 99, I got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that's when I started drifting towards the MMA world. And I think it was a year or so after I started training when I had my first fight. Yeah, loved it. Was there anybody pushing you towards uh, MMA or was that just something like, oh, maybe I, maybe I might be able to do this? Yeah, I just moved into uh, uh, I moved into Spokane again, and so I was thinking, well, I want to I want to get into another style, you know. So I thought either judo or jujitsu, and uh, I found a jujitsu school close to me that was legit. It was a Machado black belt, and so I went there and I started studying jujitsu with him, and I just loved it. And so, like most people, I started out recreationally, just doing it for fun. But you know, if you're competitive, eventually you want to test out what you've learned and see how good you are. So. That's when I started getting in, in consensual fights. And it was pretty awesome. Consensual <laughs> fights, yeah. <that's... laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I'm still... When people were asking me what was going on with this week's episode, and I said, oh, well, I'm going to be talking with a pastor who does mixed martial arts, or did mixed martial arts, and kind of the reaction was, well, I could see, yeah, a pastor you know, wanting to be disciplined and and i'm saying no no he got in a cage and fought people i'm not saying he was doing tai chi out in the, you know, <laughs> and they were like oh well okay yeah that adds a different wrinkle to it um but yeah like i was saying i didn't really start to think of, I, I thought we would be talking mostly about uh you know that aspect being a pastor and and being a cage fighter as they like to put it or just being um japanese american and i had i had known you had lived in a in a kind of a barrio for lack of a better word and so i thought we would kind of talk about that and then the more i got into it and i think mostly from watching your sermons that's when i was like there's there's more to it than just those two things like those two things are there um you know but i think uh I think being a pastor, but having, um, uh, I don't know, mixed, maybe mixed views on religion or how it's presented is maybe the bigger story. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, going to a, a pastor's meeting once and it was the day after one of my fights and my face was all busted up. Um, and, uh, there was a guy on the side, he, he kept quoting Bible verses at me from the side of his mouth, you know, about not brawling and things like that. <laughs> and, uh, he, he he was judging me hardcore, you know. Uh, he, he was a nice guy. He loved me. But, you know, he wasn't sure if there should be a, a violent pastor that was in this meeting. And so eventually he came out that it had MMA as a sport. And, of course, he had no idea what it was. And we started talking through it. But, yes, yeah, it is kind of a – it's a weird combination to be in is that MMA – my, I kind of joked with people. My deal was first I would convert people to God, and then I would send them to them, send them to God before they had a chance to backslide. And so, 
did you bring any of um, uh, do you bring any of your time as a social worker into how you practice as a pastor yeah quite a bit of it actually um, you know I grew up in a family that was riddled with addiction still is you know and I grew up uh, around a lot of people who struggled with addiction in fact my best friend's dad he got shot by his brother in Mexico when they were both drunk and so there was some pretty severe loss in that family because of addiction and so you know um, a lot of social work is dealing in my mind a lot of social work is dealing with the effects of either addiction or fatherlessness and so um <clears throat> I grew up without a father myself. You know, my, my dad took off when I was five. And I, I don't directly remember what he looks like. I have a picture or two, and that's about it. And then he uh, died in 1997, so I never really knew him. So, um, yeah, I uh, I kind of grew up in that world um, my whole life. And then when I went into church, um, at first I kind of felt like these were people who had all their crap together. Because, like I said, they were older, they were professionals, they had money. You know, compared to what I grew up with, they had these huge houses, and I kind of thought they had it all together. And um, I felt like I didn't fit in. But the more I got into church life, the more I realized that, you know, coming from an atheist background, I kind of hated Christians. And I went to church, and I kind of hated them for what they had done to so many people throughout history. Mm-hmm. And I hated them for all the wars they had started. And um, I just, I didn't trust them. And uh, at first I thought everybody was fake, and then I got to the point where I realized, well, there's actually a lot of nice people here, but, you know, they don't they don't understand anything about life because they've had everything given to them. You know, that's kind of the assumption I had, and that's why they were rich. Yeah. And uh, they were white, so they didn't have to struggle, and I had all these prejudices. And uh, as I started moving more and more into pastoral work, I realized that um, these are just human beings who deal with a lot of the same crap I did. You know, I have... One guy was a successful businessman, and uh, his daughter OD'd. And that's when I realized, oh crap, like, these people know what this is about too. Right. And um, I realized that these weren't people starting wars or um, being hateful, that most of these people in these buildings on Sundays, they're just people trying to make it through the week like the rest of us. And uh, they find comfort and strength in God, and they have beliefs about that. But... Um, I I found that my time in social work, it was uh, it helped me a lot in my pastoral work, and then my pastoral work really prepared me for the social work I was doing as well. Because uh, when you work with people and you just see people, and you you cut past all the surface crap we use to kind of put people in categories and boxes and decide, you know, who might deserve our attention, who might not, who deserves help, who doesn't, and you get past all that. And you just realize we're all human beings trying to make it. Then um, I think that was helpful both ways for me. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I I just thought they probably go probably go hand in hand. Um, cause yeah, and I actually still do a lot of social work as a pastor. Um, you know, we have a lot of people with a lot of practical struggles. I remember my friend David; he struggled with schizophrenia, and that fool could never stay on his meds, and so. He was out of it a lot of the time. And so, uh, you know, that was, the church basically became a social safety net because he, he couldn't keep a job and he would get in trouble to law. And, um, you know, of course, his house was a total mess and in disrepair. And, uh, you know, being off his meds so much, he couldn't keep his crap together. 
So our church kind of became a social safety net, and um, he had fallen through the cracks in terms of uh, social service help, and so the whole church kind of became his therapeutic community and his and his case managers and his social workers. And I've seen stuff like that happen quite a bit in the church world. That's uh, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, it seems like the goal, the the end result, you would probably want to be the same I guess in some regards but um, let's see so did you get in a lot of trouble as a kid or were you just kind of just a like serious trouble or were you just kind of just a wild kid um let's see I guess you you could have called me a wild kid because we did a lot of bad stuff but Honestly, my mom was a single mom with two kids, and she was usually working and going to school full-time, so like, she didn't have a chance when it came to me and my brother. Yeah. Like, we were just, um, so, you know, we never really had a curfew, didn't have a lot of rules, and so, um, but yeah, we did a lot of bad stuff. Uh, we never got caught for barely any of it. I have friends who have done time and stuff, uh, but, you know, thankfully, I just never got busted for anything. So, yeah, but we grew up... Uh, I ended up very comfortable with violence. We should probably put it that way. You know, too yeah. comfortable with violence. And that's kind of the, the world I grew up in. What does she think about uh, what you've done with your life? Um, yeah, she's really proud of me and my brother both. My brother is also in a helping profession. He's a nurse. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think she's proud of us. And I'm proud of her because being a, you know, she's a, a what can be considered like a, a poor lower class, um, you know, white mom who raised two kids on her own. And uh, it's not no easy thing to do. And me and my brother are blessed to have a materially better lives than she had growing up. And uh, we can kind of provide for our kids and, and uh, hopefully change the direction of our family that it's had so far in terms of the addiction and all that stuff. But um, when you compare cultures, like lower white class America, they have a lot more in common with, say, lower class black America than they do with upper middle class white America. Right. And so, um, you know, she's she, she's my hero just because raising two kids on her own and working so hard. And, you know, I've, I've been blessed with a, a real strong mom. She's very damaged, but she's also the strongest woman I know. So uh, she's really proud of us, and I'm really proud of her. And your wife, Michelle, is Latina, right? She's a Mexican. Mexican. And didn't you tell me, I thought you told me one time that she sort of grow, grew up somewhat removed from the Latino community. Yeah, she's she's what my friends would have called a coconut growing up. <laughs> 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 yeah, I was more Mexican than her when we met. <laughs> so um, so has she done any kind of reconnecting or getting to, getting to know that uh, side of her? Um, not a lot, to be honest. Um, she's, she's a lot more comfortable, uh, in that world now because a lot of, you know, our people work as well with Chicanos. And so she's, she's comfortable in that world now. Um, but Spokane, which is a city she grew up in, it's a very white city. It's well over 90% Caucasian. And so, um, as opposed to the city I grew up was, which was called Pasco. And we used to call it Old El Pasco. It's, it's you know more than more than half the city is, is Latino, mostly Mexicans, mm-hmm. and so um, um, yeah, 
now that we've done a lot of ministry, and she actually did a lot of ministry with me in the Tri-Cities uh, later in life, so she, she's real comfortable in that culture now, but uh, uh, she hasn't, she doesn't fully identify with that either. Right. So yeah, she, she's kind of in that third space that you're specializing in too. Yeah, it's a weird space to be in, but... Um, it is. Uh, I think that's all I had. Um, oh, yeah, so... Um, now, if there was, like, one message or theme from the Bible or from Christianity that you thought was um, of more importance than than any other one... Uh, what would that be and why? I think in this moment right now, I think the idea of just the, the sociology that Jesus addressed. So, you know, we're humans and we tend to gather in groups and it's important for us as we grow up and find our identity that we, we find a group to identify with. And most groups kind of, they circle the wagons and they're themselves, and then it's human nature to kind of vilify groups on the outside. You know, to take groups on the outside and make them seem evil or different or other than somehow. Yeah. And so now I see all this division in the world now, you know, with uh, um, people being obsessed with Trump, um, with with uh, evangelicals and liberals, and then with people of, of different races and, and you know, see these protests on college campuses. I mean, there's so much going on now where um, we've stopped seeing each other. And I think that hatred where we we feel like it's okay to hate other people because it's we're right. You know, we can't have the self-righteousness to where it's okay to, to judge other people or to push them away or to hate them or just to label them, which is very lazy. Right. You know, and uh, I think of the life that Jesus lived and when you think about it theologically, Christians, Christians historically believe that Jesus is actually God. And so, not just some guy who went around teaching good stuff, but we actually believe he was God at one point and that he became a man. And so it doesn't give much other than God and humans, you know? You think of God as this other creature who's different than all other things, or this other creator who's different from all other creatures. And... Um, you see that he became a man and entered our world on purpose so that he could communicate love to us. And the cross is really important in Christianity, of course. And that for us, that's a symbol of love, that God was willing to literally bleed and to die for us. And that he did that in our language. You know, he became a human. He walked in dusty earth. He spent time with real people. And this was all to communicate his love for the other, the love for people who were outside of him and in some sense distance from him and i think um if there's any message i could share from the bible right now it would be that we need to learn how to love the other and to understand and see the other as opposed to just being obsessed with um being right all the time i think it'd be better if we were more focused on being helpful and uh that's church people non-church people you know i, I see this hate become pretty acceptable and common now everywhere and i think one of the struggle that third culture kids like us face is it's hard for us to integrate an identity you know because we didn't grow up with a real firm cultural framework 
Um, but a strength that gives us is we're able to move in and out of culture as well. And we get pretty resilient because we've had to learn to adapt through our lives. So uh, if I could if I could apply that to the world at large, uh, I know there's there's people who are super far left, there's people who are super far right. People have different views on, like gun control is a big thing now because we just had another mass shooting and they happened too much. You got marginalized populations, you know? Um, so if, if I could share one message, it would be that I, I hope we can get to a place to where we can let go of a lot of the fear, a lot of the separation, a lot of the hatred, and we can find a way again to disagree with each other without losing our humanity and where we can see each other and really be with each other and try and learn and understand and listen to each other as opposed to just trying to win. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Well, you know, and I, to your point, well, here in Portland, there's a protest every other weekend. I mean, <clears throat> these guys aren't just waving signs at each other. They're starting to, well, they've been getting rowdy for a couple of years now. And um, people are getting hurt. And uh, and I think it's, it is, be, and I, and I, I definitely do this. I mean, if I see a, you know, for example, a large pickup driving down the street, I automatically have assumptions about the person driving that pickup. Sure, I, yeah. I don't see them as uh, a dad or a brother or, a, you know, I just have an opinion like, and I'm pretty sure I'm not going to like that guy. <clears throat> and I think that's that's obviously pretty common. Um, not necessarily about big trucks, but just painting a picture of somebody before you uh, before you get to know them. Um, yeah, and I understand the psychology of it. Like, you know, being a member of a tribe is really important to us as humans. And uh, a part of that is is setting ourselves up against other tribes. And so I, I get how, how primal and necessary this dynamic is just to human nature. But I think we need to rise above it and um, love more. Absolutely. Well, uh, on that touchy-feely note, uh, so your podcast, again, Reverend Kenji, Conversations and Sermons about Jesus and other stuff. So I found that on YouTube. Is that is that anywhere else? Any other? Yep, it's on uh, iTunes, Spotify, all the Stitcher. It's on all the uh, Google Play. It's on all the, the podcast platforms as well. And uh, a lot of this content I publish at my website too, which is reverendkenji.com. Okay, so listen to my podcast and go listen to his podcast. Yeah, listen to Gino's first. <laughs> I'm trying to build an audience here. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you have your book, Hearing God, Discovering a Practical Guide to Developing a Powerful Prayer Life, Spiritual Formation for Everyone. That is available on Amazon mm -hmm. for Kindle only. Yep. Okay. Um, okay. Uh so we, I, I think we got to close with our, uh, our Butte, Montana story. Yeah, we have to. Our story from Butte. Butte, Montana. <laughs> Butte. Which is, uh, you want to tell it, or you want me to show it? Uh, why don't you start, and then we'll we'll just kind of just we'll fill in the gaps. Butte, Montana. Okay, sounds by good. The, Butte, Montana, by the way, is is the birthplace of Evil Knievel. Uh, it's important to mention that. Yeah, and it's a really uh, has a rich, deep cultural heritage, and it's kind of a mecca for Montana for people who love all things beautiful. 
So Butte is like the armpit of Montana. It's this mining town. And me and Zeno had a fight there once. And so we, we drive, I don't know, it felt like about 40 hours to get there. Right. And um, we get to Butte. And uh, uh, we have, Gino has this fight before mine. And we brought along Gino's pops. And we thought it'd be cool if we had this old Indian who was our, our corner man. Because it could look like we had this mystical training style. And so... Uh, From episode uh, one, by the way. The same, the one and the same. Yeah, the one and the same. And so um, he's our corner man. But he doesn't know anything about fighting. <laughs> he, all, he, all he knows is what he's seen on TV and in movies. And so we fight and, and Gino... He lost, and it wasn't his fault. You know, the light got in his eyes. Let me People back distracted up. him. Let me back up a second, though, because here's how we prepared Pop for his role as a corner man. <laughs> I gave him a black and mild cigar to chew on. I took a white towel from the, the hotel and threw that on his shoulder. And then, of course, he had what he calls his stingy brim, which is, a, I guess, a style of fedora. And then the the to further prepare himself, he had a pint of black velvet uh, in his in inside <laughs> coat pocket. Yeah. So um, that's that's what uh, we were working with, and he did. He looked like an Indian version of Mickey from uh, the Rocky series. And he yeah, just, he did. He it just, was beautiful. Yeah, he he fit the mold perfectly. But yeah, so so yeah, go ahead. I I I lost the fight by not. Yeah, and of course you know. Every corner man has a water bottle. And so he has this water bottle. And we're in the ring after the fight when Gino is just dejected, you know, because losing a fight sucks. And uh, um, we're in there. They're announcing his opponent. His name was Lear Basir, another Indian, actually. Great but they announced him as the way. Yeah, he is awesome. And uh, they announced him as the winner. And, uh, you know, Gino is just at his lowest low right there because, you know, he had hopes to win. He lost the fight in front of all these people and out of nowhere <laughs> well, and, also, and also I thought and I still kind of think this that the fight was stopped too early yeah yeah so he was mad about that because yeah. it was a flash knockout right yeah. so you weren't, you weren't totally out yeah I hit the ground but I was immediately back up and, and the fight was being waved off uh, at that yeah. point so yeah but yeah not in very good spirits at that point and I'm looking around because I'm actually the next fight and I need to warm up soon because I'm not going to get a proper warm-up before my fight because the way he scheduled it. So I'm just thinking of getting out of the ring and warming up. So I'm looking around, and I look to my left, and I see Gino and his pops there. And then all of a sudden, I see this huge splash just ricochet off of Gino's face. <laughs> and what had happened is his dad had just thrown a bunch of water in his face. Just basically randomly out of nowhere. Like I was on fire. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, of course, we didn't know what the, why the hell he did that. And so Gino was already upset. He looks at me and he looks at us and he's like, what'd you do that for? <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and, and, and as Pops is throwing the water in Gino's face, he's going, <laughs> he just goes, it's over. And then he just over. douses him with all this water. Yeah, he says, it's over. And he just splashes all this water in his face. And Gino looks at him and he looks at me and he goes, get him the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, I'm not going to grab his dad and drag him out of the ring against his will, so I just let it go. But we asked him afterward, oh, why did you do that? Like, what came in your mind? And his only answer was, well, that's what they do in the movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a moment I, I'm going to 
Yeah, that was this. I had I did not see it coming. It was this sploosh. Yeah, and then his yeah, that's what they do in the movies. And I think he said uh, I got a little caught up in the moment or something, you know, something to that effect. But he he took it upon himself to get into the cage, which which he hadn't been into the cage at that point. He didn't come in like when I was being introduced or anything. He just climbed in with a full bottle of water directly in the face from about three inches away. Yeah, there, was, there was a good crowd that night because there was probably 1,300 people in the stands. Like, it was a good show. Yeah. And so there's the lights. There's everyone cheering and yelling. Yeah, I could see how he got carried away. But. Yeah, he, took it, he, he took it very seriously, his role as the, the corner man. Yeah, he did the one thing he knew how to do, and that was throw water in Gino's face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a moment. Uh, that's probably one of the all-time classic pop moments and there's been many but that one is that's the one i'm probably going to tell uh you know when i'm delivering a eulogy because yeah. that kind of sums it up that sums up his life. <laughs> he got a little carried away well uh yeah that that's a that was a fun trip we had a lot of fun in butte and yeah we did Despite, uh, I, I I also remember we we had went to a restaurant, you know, just to have a bite to eat. I think it was the day before the fight, maybe, or the day after. And we sat down at the restaurant, and the prices were a little higher than we were expecting. And we all kind of looked at each other, you know, well, should we get up and leave? Like, what should we do? Well, then Pop stands up <laughs> and starts acting confused. <laughs> He's, <laughs> He starts doing this like, where are we at? What are we doing? <laughs> so I so I grab him by the arm and I'm kind of leading him out. It'll be okay, Pop. No, it's fine. And people are looking up at him and, and you know, somebody's, is he okay? I'm like, he's fine. He's fine. No, we're just going to get out of here. We're just going to get out of here rather than, <laughs> rather than go, this is way too expensive <laughs> for what they're offering. So he just... He pulled that one out of his stingy brim and we used, you know, the confused old man routine. But... Yeah. yeah, it saved his face because we were able to to just get this old confused man safely home as opposed to just saying it was too expensive. Right, yeah. But, you know, I'm not sure how much of that was an act because when we were chilling in Butte, you know, walking around the day the day of, he would just wander off into the middle of the street right. and start looking around. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like... It's like, yeah, you did. And it's like we didn't exist. He would just wander off and start looking around, standing in one spot, shuffling in different directions, just eyeballing stuff. And he had a little shake to him going on. It was just the funniest thing. Well, and he wouldn't be on, like, the corner of the sidewalk. He would be two-thirds of the way out into the street, but not looking looking up the street or down the street. He'd be looking sort of cattywampus over That's, you know, you never really could tell what he was focused on, but he would just do it. He would just, and I, I predicted it. When we started walking around, I said, watch this. He's going to stop some weird place, and you'll just see him looking around. And we were walking, and then, and then a couple blocks, and there he was, two blocks behind us, just standing there. <laughs> Yeah. I, rem- I remember thinking it's like he had a lover back here when he was in his teens and he was looking for her after right. all these years you know i was like i don't know what he's doing oh i think i remember what it was though because i think every place we stopped he kept going i think that bar i was at was right here. <laughs> yeah. like he said that six different times i think that was the bar that i that i stopped in at and i'm like jesus you said that every every bar we've passed maybe you stopped in all of them <laughs> Didn't he have a story about the bar? Like some guy had threatened him too or something? Yeah. Yeah, I, rem- 
I remember every bar he thought was the bar. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah, that was that was a good trip. Um, <laughs> that was well worth the knockout, I think. Yes, it was. <laughs> and my face was fine, and yeah, it, it was fun. Made a little money, but it was a trip. You know, that was yeah, the trip. That was worth it. Yeah. Okay, man. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, and thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, I had fun. This was good. If you if you want somebody on your show that doesn't know much about the stuff you're talking about, I'm game. Cool. All right, that was Kenji Nita. My name is Gino Ray. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Stay tuned next week for another very exciting episode where I will have a very exciting special guest lined up. Um, like and subscribe. I, you know what? I don't really care if you like and subscribe. Just listen to it. Enjoy it. Um, email any questions or comments to the Gino Show at gmail.com. See ya.